0: Welcome to this Touch Podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Oncology. In this podcast, three experts in HPV vaccination discuss the importance of HPV vaccination in preventing malignancies, World Health Organization guidance on vaccine eligibility and scheduling, as well as strategies to improve HPV vaccination uptake. This discussion is guided by pre-canvassed questions provided by healthcare professionals involved in HPV vaccination. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from Merck & Co Inc. and is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME.
1: Hello, welcome everyone. My name is Eduardo Franco. I'm a cancer epidemiologist at McGill University Montreal in Canada. And I, w- I wish to welcome you to this educational activity on preventing HPV-associated cancers by maximizing vaccine uptake. And I'm joined today by Professor Lina Danny uh, from South Africa and Professor Daniel Kelly from the UK, two distinguished experts on this very topic here. Uh, let's get started, but first let's discuss the benefits of HPV vaccination and how vaccination can help prevent adult cancers from a young age. So let's talk about what the virus that uh, causes these diseases. HPV is a DNA virus that can cause cancer. It is uh, a very common uh, sexually transmitted infection. Uh, Roughly 80% of people acquire HPV over a lifetime and uh, mostly via sexual contact, skin-to-skin contact, or skin to mucosa contact. But the vast majority of these infections are asymptomatic and spontaneously clear within one to two years. And uh, the the HPVs, they belong to a large family of viruses. There are over 200 types of HPV, of which 12 to 14 types, roughly, they are considered high-risk types, oncogenic or carcinogenic, if you will. And that includes the most carcinogenic of them all, uh, the types HPV16 and 18. Some people call them strains. And in general, we know it has been decided now, after decades of research, that HPV infection is the root cause of roughly 5% of all cancers worldwide. And this varies by cancer type. For instance, all cervical cancers are believed to be caused by HPV infection. Thus, it's unnecessary of cervical cancer. And the same is is likely true also for anal carcinomas. And a little less so, about 78% of uh, vaginal cancers are caused by HPV, about 53% of penile cancers as well. And then for oropharyngeal and vulvar cancers, there is some variation, about 13 to 60% for oropharyngeal cancers. This varies geographically, from 15 to 48% for vulvar cancer, and uh, about uh, a little less than 5% for oral cavity and laryngeal cancer. So, undeniably, a very important cause of cancer indeed. So with that background in mind, so let's now have a discussion. I'm delighted to welcome our faculty, Professor Lin and Professor Daniel Kelly. And they'll both discuss the, this topic based on questions that have been submitted from a pre-Canvas target audience. So let me start with the first question. What does the HPV vaccine consist of and how does it prevent HPV infection?
2: Thank you for the question. The HPV vaccine consists of Um, a protein known as the L1 protein which is coded for by the virus and it assembles these L1 proteins into what's known as virus-like particles. These particles, when they're injected into the body, induce what is known as an HPV type-specific neutralizing antibodies and essentially antibodies are antidotes to the antigen. So when the person is exposed to the HPV virus, the body will immediately um, produce these antibodies that will immobilize and prevent that vaccine from entering into the body. And what's also very important to know is that the vaccine induces very, very high levels of antibody against the human papillomavirus, much higher than are induced natural infection
1: and uh, given how how good they are how many HPV vaccines have been pre-qualified for use by the WHO and that are commercially available right now are any key differences between these vaccines
2: so currently there are six um, different uh, vaccines that have been either WHO pre-qualified or they've been licensed the first three vaccines uh, that um, have been commercially available uh, are um, a quadrivalent vaccine, a bivalent vaccine and a non-avalent vaccine. So these vaccines consist of different types. The bivalent um, produces or stimulates antibodies against types 16 and 18, which are responsible for over 70% of cervical cancers throughout the world. The quadrivalent vaccine in addition has uh, antigens which stimulate antibodies against type 6 and 11 which cause benign anogenital tract disease specifically uh, genital warts. The nonovalent vaccine which has been um, approved since 2014, this vaccine has an additional um, Five types of vaccines, type, uh, sorry, antigens, type 31, 33, 45, 52, and 58. The other vaccines, which have been produced um, in India and China, have only been available since 2020 and 2022. So data on their long term impact are still uh, being acquired. The data on the others and the differences between the others have now been well-established.
1: Well, thank you very much. This is very informative. And what are the efficacy data that we have for HPV vaccines and how they prevent HPV infection, uh, neoplastic malignancies and other HPV-related outcomes?
3: Well, the data are very convincing. That's the first thing to say. But it does come with a caveat. It depends whether you're looking at high-income countries with effective health systems, or low to medium income countries where the data may not exist yet, the vaccination programs may not exist, and certainly the supportive systems such as cancer registries, etc. may not be mature enough to capture benefit. But for those high income countries, we, we know that um, for cervical cancer, which is the one we're interested in here today, there's been around 50% reduction in the past 30 years. Survival rates because of benefits in treatment for cervical cancer have also led to um, 87% response in early stages and 70% in locally advanced disease. And we have to think of that as a, a product of a sophisticated health system that allows resources for screening, public health education, etc to be wrapped around this vaccine the vaccine on its own won't always produce the goods it's the support of infrastructure that's also needed
1: well thank you very much and uh, but aside from preventing hpv related cancers what other benefits of uh, hpv vaccines that we can we can uh, speak of
3: well apart from the other cancers of course which are implicated which uh, we know are also uh, linked with this vaccine. It's also for me uh, an insight into the priorities that a public health system plays um, in terms of younger adult health. And comparisons can be made across countries, across borders, and also at the global level. But in the moment of vaccination, I think it gives the health professional an opportunity to engage in what we might call a teachable moment with those young people around sexual health or mental health or other adolescent health needs that otherwise may go unrecognised. Uh, so it's an opportunity both to pre- pre- prevent a cancer but also to protect against other unmet needs that we may not be aware of.
1: Well, thank you very much. So Lynn uh, do you have anything to add?
2: Yes, I think that some of the issues in low and middle income countries, in fact, also in high-income countries, is that a health platform for administering healthcare to adolescents is very seldom effective or or even available. And we have shown that the the benefits of school-based vaccination are superior to facility-based vaccination, and it's an opportunity to link other important healthcare interventions, such as, and there's a range. Testing for visual acuity, testing for hearing loss, nutritional um, health, uh, deworming, education around safe sex and prevention of sexually transmitted infections. These could be very valuable interventions would have long-term impact um, on the health of these young children in the future.
1: This has been excellent. Uh, we have vaccines that work, more than one. We have several vaccines now, some additional ones in the pipeline. We know that uh, at least the ones that have been tried early, they are, there's long-term uh, efficacy data. But as you just learned, that there is, uh, it's a package deal. It, deploying HIV vaccination comes with many things that uh, are important in the healthcare system, in primary care delivery, and all of that. So thank you both, Professor Danny and Professor Kelly, for this excellent discussion. And thank you all for watching. You can find more on this very topic by watching the other two videos that we have on this series. Thank you all. Hello everyone. Uh, Welcome to this session. My name is Eduardo Franco. I'm a cancer epidemiologist at McGill University in Montreal, Canada and uh, this is an educational activity on preventing HPV-associated cancers by maximizing vaccine uptake. Now, the second topic that we'll be discussing in this series is a very important question. Who should be vaccinated against HPV infection and why? And uh, let me give you a little bit of background with respect to this important question. And that's about the World Health Organization vaccination campaign to prevent cervical cancer. And it has established, the WHO has established, that the primary target group, essentially girls aged 9 to 14 years before they become sexually active. Uh, It is uh, vaccinating over 80% of girls who also have the advantage of reducing risk of HPV infection in boys as well. Now, we can talk about secondary target groups, which are uh, females, women aged uh, 15 years and older, and uh, also vaccination of boys, older males, and men who have sex with men. And those secondary target groups, they are only recommended if they're feasible and affordable for a given country, and it does not divert resources from vaccinating the primary target group, which I mentioned are girls 9 to 14. So in all, implementing this strategy could potentially prevent 60 million cervical cancer cases and 45 million deaths over the next 100 years. Now, as far as uh, the schedules uh, by the World Health Organization, the recommended one is based on two doses, for the primary target group and older age groups for which vaccines are licensed and uh, the spacing between the doses has to be at least six months. There's no maximum recommended interval between doses. Now as far as the alternative schedules go there's a single dose vaccination which has been uh, recently approved by the World Health Organization, but it is off-label. So girls and boys aged 9 to 20 years, it's off-label use of the vaccine, and for those that are licensed, that's two- or three-dose schedules. It's very important also to underscore the importance of protecting immunocompromised or HIV-infected persons, at least two doses, three if possible, regardless of age uh, or antiretroviral retroviral therapy status for those who have received them, and um, six months or longer between the two doses. Currently, there is no evidence to suggest that a booster dose is needed after the primary HPV vaccination, except for those high-risk groups that I just mentioned uh, now. So with this background in mind, so now now let's start a discussion with our distinguished faculty, uh, Professor Lynette Denny and Professor Daniel Kelly. Uh, and uh, these uh, points for discussion, they include pre-canvas questions that were submitted by a target audience. So let's start with the first one. How does the World Health Organization position on HPV vaccination compares compare with regional guidelines?
2: Um, thank you for the question. And as uh, Professor Franco has just pointed out, the WHO position is to focus on girls under the age of 15 and that we should vaccinate at least 90% of these girls if we're going to have an impact on eliminating cervical cancer. But there have also been calls to vaccinate boys and there have been calls for vaccinating older women uh, to increase the coverage. Um, However, the focus should remain on girls so that because they are the ones most likely to have disease associated um, with HPV later in life. Um, So, what the regional positions are all context-specific and resource-specific. And the greater the resources, the greater the possibility of extending the people who can or should be vaccinated, such as what is known as catch-up vaccination, Um, where girls older than the age of 15 to age 25 are also um, vaccinated. The problem with expanding the target audience for vaccination is that there has, in fact, been a supply chain problem with insufficient vaccination uh, doses and vials being available. Um, And the people who suffered most from that were those living in low- and middle-income countries.
1: And, and thank you. And with that in mind, now we also uh, there is some variation in vaccine scheduling. How does that impact outcomes?
3: Well, I think again there's a, an element of uh, reality here. That um, where do we where do we target? Where do we send the resources that we have available? It's now in Europe, and I speak from the European perspective. Uh, WHO Europe have now recommended a single dose, and a single dose has been accepted because the evidence suggests that it at least uh, offers widespread uh, delivery across populations. Whether that provides longer term protection is as yet unknown, but saying that there will be groups that will need more than one single dose. Those might be people who are immunocompromised or who are more at risk and who can perhaps access the, the, the vaccine in other, through other ways.
1: Now, that's very important indeed. But what are the benefits of vaccinating males against HPV? And uh, what are, if you could speak a little more also about uh, people with HIV?
3: Well, the argument we in the European Cancer Organization have taken the line that um, it's a human rights issue. Both groups should be offered this uh, vaccine, and that was the argument made to the British government actually. Uh, I think it was 2017. They were only vaccinating girls and now they vaccinate boys. So this gender neutral approach is one that we argue uh, provides the best blanket protection uh, across all sectors of the public of the population. Now, people who are most at risk of uh, the damage are people who, as I say, were immunocompromised. So HIV certainly is in that uh, in that sector. Obviously, if the if the virus is undetectable, then they may not be quite so at risk. But people with a high viral r- load um, will be susceptible to some of these uh, effects. So we would say that it's a it's a, probably a case of. Targeting those uh, protections towards the groups in the HIV population who are most at need.
2: Vaccinating HIV infected individuals is a critical part of the strategy for reducing HPV associated disease. And we do know that in HIV infected people, the risk of HPV infection is much higher um, and the risk of progression to pre-cancer and ultimately to cancer is much faster and occurs at a younger age. So vaccinating HIV positive um, individuals is a critical part of the strategy. And in fact, there have been a number of studies that have looked at the safety and the immunogenicity of HP vaccination in HIV positive individuals, and they've shown that it's not inferior to those who are HIV negative.
1: Is there any optimal age or cut off for vaccinating?
2: Certainly, I think the evidence suggests that the younger um, children and adolescents have a much stronger um, immune response to vaccination than do older, um, older people. So it appears that the immunity induced by HPV vaccination is the greatest in childhood and adolescence. Vaccinating later in life is problematic because the vast majority of people will be um, infected with HPV at some time in their lives but the argument for vaccinating older women and I'm talking firstly women up to the age of 26 and then some would say to the age of 45 is that not everyone is, is infected with or HPV types, that's 16 and 18, so you could have been exposed to HPV 16 but not HPV 18, in which case there would be a benefit in receiving that vaccination. There has been some evidence that um, there is a reduction in HPV associated disease in older vaccinated women But again, it is a resource issue. First, the most important group to vaccinate is girls under the age of 15. The next group is the catch-up group between the ages of 15 and 18 and possibly to age 26. The next group would be males. And then the next group would be older women. And if we learn from the hepatitis B vaccine story, In fact, it was only once hepatitis B vaccination was included in infant vaccination that it became uh, almost 100% coverage of the targeted population. So we don't have data that justifies vaccinating infants, but that may be something to consider in the future.
1: Indeed, indeed. So true. And uh, it's important to take our lessons from other, uh, uh, the experience we have with other uh, uh, vaccines and how we deploy them. So I I'm, uh, I'm thank, thank you both for this uh, great discussion. I greatly appreciate your time. And I hope this session was, was useful to all of you. And please join us uh, in for uh, the other two sessions in this very series about HPV vaccination. Thank you all very much. Hello, everyone. My name is Eduardo Franco. I want to welcome you back to this educational activity on preventing HPV-associated cancers by maximizing vaccine uptake. And the topic that will be discussed here today is barriers to HPV vaccine uptake and how they can be overcome. As you can imagine, vaccination coverage varies globally. There are uh, countries in North America uh, parts of South America. Australia was a pioneering country in terms of vaccination. There's very high coverage, close to 100 percent in countries such as Canada, Australia, and uh, uh, many uh, Western European countries, Scandinavian countries, South Africa for instance. But we do have important gaps in coverage in uptake of HPV vaccination, in in, in addition to the fact that many countries have not even started to deploy HPV vaccination. So even though the the targets are very ambitious. We have a long way to go in deploying HPV vaccination. Now, as far as the barriers to attain success in, in uh, having high vaccination uptake, there are some. And uh, we can look at those from uh, in terms of national, international barriers, such as, for instance, access to health care, which varies enormously. Uh, across countries and even uh, between regions. Availability of vaccines is also an important uh, barrier. Um, We had, of course, the COVID pandemic which imposed important uh, interruptions in in delivery of uh, HPV vaccination. Supply of vaccines, of course, as the world has uh, diverted its attention to other uh, other, uh, supply chains for for covid vaccination this affected of course hpv vaccination supplies costs costs continue to be an important consideration uh, the cold chain capacity to distribute uh, these vaccines and of course government political commitment from different countries and those are those are the barriers uh, primarily at the national international contextual level. But there are also individual barriers such as perception of safety, safety concerns, stigmas associated with a vaccine that's linked with sexual activity and eventually poor vaccine awareness in general. Now with this background in mind, so let's now have a, a discussion with our panelists and I'm delighted to be joined by our distinguished faculty, Professor Lynette Denny from South Africa and Professor Daniel Kelly in the UK. We're going to be discussing along the lines of uh, questions submitted by a pre-canvassed audience on very important points here. And let me start with the first question that I would like to ask our panelists. How tolerable is the HPV vaccine and are there any important side effects? A key question.
2: Very, very important. Um, Safety of any medical intervention is critical And I think that the HPV vaccine over literally millions of doses that have been administered has been shown to be consistently um, safe uh, and tolerable. The most common side effect is pain at the site of the injection or local irritation of the skin, which is usually temporary and resolves on its own without any treatment. There have been reports of adverse events Um, and there is a very strong anti-vaccine lobby in the world, largely in Western countries, um, that have created vaccine hesitancy, as it's known, um, due to the fears And the vaccine has been accused of many ills, which have never been proven. The World Health Organization, which um, is rigorous in assessing um, uh, the safety, and efficacy of vaccines have stated unequivocally that all approved vaccines at this point in time are safe, with no um, serious side effects, and only really benefits. Remember too, that this vaccine is not a live vaccine. What you're injecting into the body is a protein. It's not an organism that can cause damage to the host.
1: Thank you very much for this. Now, but let's address also other concerns that parents and caregivers have. Uh, For instance, that the HPV vaccine, receiving an HPV vaccine, can potentially promote sexual uh, 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 behavior that's uh, not ideal for that child, for that teenager. How can that be addressed?
3: Well, I I think it's a very uh, important point to address because... Uh, Parents, I think, find it very difficult to think of their young children being at risk from a sexually transmitted virus. And I think the best way to address that is through factual education, actually, and to give uh, people information on the benefits of this protection. Because if they were to see the uh, outcomes of the cancers that can arise as a result of HPV, then... I think some of the uh, misinformation might fall away, but obviously we don't want to do that. We don't want to scare people. But I think it's about giving information. We did a a, a study in Cardiff looking at all the published interventions and what parents and caregivers prefer is face-to-face information where they can ask questions and be reassured. They weren't so keen on printed information or online so i think we need to have a face to face opportunity with parents who may have some concerns in order to challenge some of that hesitancy that might be there
1: indeed indeed there's no evidence whatsoever to to the fact that uh, to the to the uh, notion that they could uh, lead to healthy uh, unhealthy uh, behaviors now, think again, let's, let's think now on a global scale and uh, country level uh, access to HPV vaccines. And this varies, as I, as I mentioned in my, in my remarks. And, uh, and to what extent does this impact outcomes? And of course, you know, I also mentioned the COVID pandemic, which was a major disruption in delivery systems and mechanisms throughout the world. And uh, this, of course, affected too many, the two main uh, ways of uh, delivering HPV vaccines, school-based vaccination, as well as uh, in clinic-based deployment.
2: Sure. Um, there's tremendous, actually, inequity of access to HPV vaccines. And as usual, um, in the health arena, it is low- and middle-income countries that take the biggest um, knock. And certainly, um, in many low-income countries, very few have been able to initiate HPV vaccine requirements. And as Professor Kelly pointed out, this is not just about putting a needle in the arm. It's about the infrastructure required and the implementation strategy so that you have the highest coverage and the most effective outcomes. But it has been able to work in some countries, such as, for example, um, in Rwanda, where over 90% of the target population of girls have been successfully vaccinated, as well as, um, for example, Bhutan, where, again, with the uh, uh, collaboration with the Australian government, over 90% of the targeted girls have been vaccinated. So it is possible, and with the help of Gavi the Global um, Alliance for Vaccine Immunization, they negotiated the price of HPV vaccine down to $4.5. The COVID-19 pandemic had a devastating impact on existing HPV programs. And particularly in my country, in South Africa, we had reached a coverage of 86% of our targeted population of girls between the ages of um, 9 and 12, 86% in 2020, and in 2021 this went down to 3%. And this was a combination of school closures, of the failure or the inability to sustain the school health um, vaccination program, teachers being absent, loss of life, and the complete disruption of the healthcare system. And there's no doubt that the school-based vaccination programs are the most effective. However, in some countries, only 50% of girls actually go to school. So school-based vaccination programs are the backbone, but we have to find ways of bringing all girls into the vaccination orbit, and that's where, to an extent, facility-based vaccination programs could be located. Good on those who persist and are tenacious, it's coming back, and our vaccination coverage in South Africa has now gone from 3% to over 47%. Um, So we can recover.
1: Yeah, this is so important. And you mentioned success stories such as Rwanda and Bhutan, which have lots of stakeholders have invested in demonstrating that this can be achieved. So what sort of strategies can we actually use to facilitate and improve uh, vaccine, uh, HP vaccination uptake? And how effective are these nationwide vaccination programs? Can we build resilience into them uh, to protect them against uh, future situations such as the COVID-19 pandemic?
3: Yeah, I I would say that um, the most important strategy is to have political buy-in to this approach. And in some countries in, in my continent, in Europe, there's a huge variation across the continent from very established, high uptick to almost non-existent, and we are working very hard to try and help them. And on a a continent-wide level, we now have a beating cancer plan with HPV vaccination included in that. So all governments in Europe, in the WHO region, will have to show that they're doing something about HPV vaccination. So I think there's a political dimension here. But also, uh, when we think about how effective they are, I think we can look at um, systems that have worked very well. And for me, that's about working with young people, not always imposing this on them. So helping peer-to-peer uh, education, involving group-level education of benefit, and using that, uh, that double-edged sword that we have these days, social media which can spread so much disinformation about vaccination, but it can also spread so much good messaging. So I think it's about wrapping all that together, the politics, the messaging, and having the resource so that the nations themselves can peer review each other and see what what they're doing and what they're failing to do. Because every young person, I think, deserves the same level of protection
1: indeed indeed Uh, uh, thank you both very much for this excellent discussion terrific insights and uh, in one of the most important topics on on uh, which are barriers to hpv vaccination which is to a large extent is also true in for the delivery of other vaccines as well and i thank you both very much this has been a very informative session and uh, i I hope uh, you have a chance uh, to uh, watch the other two uh, sessions we have in this very series thank you all very much
0: thank you for listening to this touch podcast you can access more content on this and related topics on touch oncology at www.touchoncology.com.